Well, if you could turn once again to John chapter 12, if you're not there already. You'll see um, the, the title of this message is The Hour Has Come. And uh, the reason I titled it that is that uh, in the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel, you have repeated phrases such as his time has not come, his hour has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come, from Jesus' lips. But then what you see here is something different. Jesus had previously evaded those who wanted to kill him because his hour had not yet come, but now it's different. He says, the hour has come. This marks a change in the Gospel of John. Now the question is, what does Jesus mean by that? My hour has come. What does he mean by that? And so what? If I can say it like that. What, what happens when this hour has come? What's the significance of it? And you may be thinking, well, that's in the past. How does that affect me now? Well, everything that we're going to look at this morning affects you today. Because you live in a time in the light of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You live in a time after that and you benefit from it. If you're a believer here this morning, you are living as a New Testament Christian and you are living with forgiveness and you are living with all the blessings of salvation because of what Jesus did that was fulfilled at this hour. And so I want to look at the things that it says that happened or that occurred because of this hour coming. So what's the result then of this appointed hour arriving? Well, I want to direct your attention, first of all, to verse 23. Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the first thing that happens. The Son of Man is glorified or was glorified at that hour. Now, on numerous occasions, Jesus has identified himself as the Son of Man. And that's an Old Testament messianic title. Uh, The Jews would have recognised what that meant. They would have known what he was saying. It's referring to the coming Messiah, who is a man, but he's also more than a man. He's a divine Messiah. He's God in the flesh. And this is the great expectation of the Old Testament. If ever you want to know what's the Old Testament about, what's it leading up to, it's this. It's that this divine king would come, he would arrive, and he would rescue his people from sin and all the misery that that entails. And that's what the Old Testament points us to. And Jesus is saying here that this hour has come for this to happen. That the hour of his death and resurrection is when the Son of Man will be glorified. Now, of course, normally we would never think of death as something glorifying, would we? If you think of death, you think of defeat and failure, don't you? But Jesus is saying here that his death is actually what causes him to be glorified. And that's because his death leads to his resurrection. You see, death was not a defeat for Jesus. It was a victory because he was raised victorious over sin, death and the devil, wasn't he? He was raised and Jesus would be glorified. The son of man would be glorified in his resurrection and his exaltation. But there's more to it than that. He's glorified by what he accomplished in his death. 
It's not just that he was raised, but it's what he was doing, what he was accomplishing in doing that. And Jesus' death was unlike any death to that point or after that point. It's a unique death. And even his experience leading up to his death was unique. Uh, In the time leading up to Jesus' death, Jesus knew that he would not be dying as a victim of circumstance. And see, this is how the world differs from the church. You see, a Christian sees this and they realise that Jesus knew what he was doing. And it was within his own power to lay his life down. The world says, oh, the Romans didn't like this upstart and they crucified him. The Jews didn't like this troublemaker and they got rid of him. That's what the world would say. But the Bible says Jesus laid down his life. He knew what he was doing. And if you think about it, Jesus was the only person who willingly subjected himself to the wrath of God knowingly ahead of time. That's unique. Nobody else you could ever say that about, could you? He knew what he was going into. And you see, that makes this so much more powerful, doesn't it? If Jesus hadn't known what he was doing, you could have thought, well, he wouldn't have done it otherwise. But no, he knew full well what was going to happen to him. And we we often focus on on the the physical suffering of Jesus. I, I don't want to, in any way, shape or form, detract from that. However, there's more to it than that, isn't there? We are saved people, not just because of that, but because of the wrath of God of the sin falling upon Christ. And he knew that. He went to the cross knowing that he was going to have to bear that punishment on our behalf. It's intentional. Does that not change the way you think about Jesus being glorified at the cross? He goes to his death knowing that the wrath of God is going to fall on him. Not for his own sins, because he didn't deserve it. But for yours and mine and for all people who believe in him. Make that personal for a moment. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's your sin that was being paid for when he did that. He should be glorified, shouldn't he? He should be. And that's what it says happened. The son of man is glorified at that hour because he willingly gave up his life in the knowledge that he wouldn't just die physically, but that he would, the the one who knew no sin would become sin so that we might be forgiven. Now in verse 24, next verse, Jesus compares his death to a kernel of wheat being buried in the ground. And it must be buried first. He said it must die, be buried in the ground, in order to produce a yield. And that's basic agriculture, isn't it? If you don't sow the seed, nothing happens. It just sits in the packet. But um, Jesus said that if you sow the seed, if it goes into the ground, then when it springs forth, it brings forth a crop, a yield, many more seeds, many more like itself. And as a result of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection we get to share, in some measure, in his glory and his resurrection triumph and his resurrection power. We are the fruit of his labours. We would not be here if Jesus hadn't died and been raised again. Right? And so, 
The next section here, I won't major on this because that's not what I really want to focus on, but I will mention it. He sets out the conditions here for us sharing in his glory. And it's that we must adopt the same attitude to life as he did. Uh, You see this in verses 25 and 26. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not to enjoy your life. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the good gifts God has given. It doesn't mean that you're to go around with a a miserable face the whole time. It doesn't mean that. It's not saying that. Uh, What it's saying is that we must not prize our life above God. Don't put your life and all the things that that entails, whatever you value in life, whether it's money, possessions, friends, family is actually the example given. Don't idolise other things because... All the time you're trying to hang on to those things, you're missing the point. This is what he says. And so if you try to hang on to your life, you lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life, you gain it. You gain eternal life. That's not the world's way of thinking, is it? The world's way of thinking is I must accumulate and do as much as I possibly can to achieve all that I possibly can in the 80 or 90 years I've got. Maybe more for some. But then what? Then who shall these things be? What happens? You can't control what happens to your finances afterwards. You don't know whether your son will be silly or not with your money. All of these things. These are pro- I'm going to Proverbs now, aren't I? <laughs> but the point Jesus is making is that don't prize your life and all the stuff that goes with it. Because actually you need to adopt the same attitude that Jesus had. That's... Difficult, isn't it? But it's not impossible for us to do that in some measure. Seeking not to hold on to everything means we get eternal life, doesn't it? Just think of it this way. If Jesus had decided to hang on to his life, what would we have now? He didn't decide to hang on to his own life, did he? He was willing to let it go, to die and be raised. And then he says in verse 27... Now my soul is troubled. Well, I'm not surprised. I'm <laughs> not surprised his soul is troubled, knowing that he wasn't just going to die physically, but experience the wrath of God for sin when he was sinless. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So Jesus has got his eyes wide open, hasn't he? He goes into this. He says, well, what am I going to do? Now, I'm, now I've finally reached the time that I came here for. Am I now going to say, oh, no, do you know what? This is not for me. I've decided not to do this anymore. He says, no, I will not say that. My father's will be done. We don't even understand that, do we? How can we possibly grasp that? We don't know anything but sin, do we? We don't know a life that's sinless. We can't relate to that. And yet this is what the word of God says. We need to follow that same pattern. We need to let go of our old life. We're united to him by faith and we join him in the power of his resurrection. So one day we too will be raised with a body incorruptible like his. The hour had come when Jesus, the son of man, would be glorified. And his glory is unique as the son of God. But as a consequence, all those who believe in him will be united to him and we will be caught up and we will share that glory. We'll share that glory. We'll share in his resurrection life. 
all because of his doing, all because of his accomplishment. There's a second thing I want to point out here. Verse 28. As a result of that hour coming, we're told the Father's name is glorified. So we're told the Son is glorified, but now we're told the Father's name is glorified. And the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to make God's name known throughout the nations. In his life, death and resurrection, Jesus would open the way for all people to know God for themselves. And God's name would be made known among the nations. This whole plan of salvation from the very start was the Father's idea. It was the Father's idea. He decreed that it should happen and at this hour his plans are coming to fruition. This is what's going on here. And so the Father is glorified. You know, sometimes we, we wrongly think of God the Father as the angry one and Jesus as the nice one. And God is just wanting to punish you, but Jesus says, no, don't do that. That's not the right way to think of it. Remember, your salvation was God's idea in the first place. The Father planned that you, if you're a Christian, the Father planned that you would be saved. That you would be chosen, that you would be saved. That Jesus would die for your sins and that you would be raised to life eternal because of his power. The Father planned that. And so it says here, the Father is glorified because the Son is carrying out his will. You see, the Father's glorified as well. It's the third thing I want to point out. There's four in total. So you know how far we are. When this hour came, the world was judged, we read here, and the prince of this world was driven out. Now that is a huge accomplishment which changed the course of history forever. Jesus came to his own people first, but the leaders rejected him. And they thought that they had successfully pronounced judgment on him, you see. They thought they were going to have him crucified. They thought, well, we've pronounced our judgment on Jesus. That will be the end of that. That's him done away with. That's how we get rid of people we don't like. But in reality, Jesus was going to pronounce judgment on them and their false way of worship, their false system of worship. In his death and his resurrection, he made all of mankind's religious efforts obsolete. All of mankind's efforts to come to God, obsolete. All of the Jews' worship, obsolete. The temple, obsolete. All of these things were done away with, with the new time that Jesus ushered in. Mankind's rebellion against God was everywhere in the world. But from this hour, transformation of nations would begin. I want you to just think, think back. I'm, I'm simplifying here, but think of the Old Testament. What were the nations like in the Old Testament? They were without God in the world. They were pagan nations. The only nation who knew God was Israel and anyone who attached themselves to Israel, anyone who became an Israelite effectively, they were the only people who knew God. Now think about what happened after the resurrection. All the nations hear the gospel and so many people from all different nations come to God, don't they? This is what it means. The devil has been defeated. The devil has been drawn out, driven out. And Jesus is pronounce, pronouncing a judgment here. 
And this is not the final judgment. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that a verdict has been secured. A verdict has been secured. Jesus is victorious. And so we look back to the cross and we realise that our victory is not entirely something future. But we look back to Christ who won the victory when he died and raised. You see, we've already got the victory, haven't we? And we've yet to experience the fullness of that. We already experience salvation now, but we don't yet experience the fullness of it. But we will. But we will. But in the intermediate period, many people keep coming to God through Christ. That way is open. That knowledge is spread and the devil cannot stop it. Isn't that good news? You know, and how discouraged you feel sometimes. And I do as well. We all do because we all mess things up all the time. But how, no matter how discouraged you feel, you've talked to your, your friend at work about the gospel and they've just boohooed it. You know, you spoke to your neighbour and they just said, oh, don't start that again. You spoke to your kids and they just went, oh, mum, give it a rest, will you? <laughs> I can see this has happened to a few of you. But you see, we, we see through little goggles with a tunnel vision, don't we? We think of our perspective and what's going on in our little life. But God is stepping right back and not falling over his chair. God is stepping right back and he sees things from the big picture view, doesn't he? We need to think more along the lines of God's perspective than ours. Because God has a big plan for the world. And that is to draw people from every tribe, tongue and nation in. And that's not just talking about foreign missions. It is. But it's not only about that. It's about missions on your doorstep. You're a tribe, a tongue and a nation, aren't you? Right? So it's, it's everybody, isn't it? And you do not know who God is going to rescue. Let me tell you a very short example where I've um, messed up and failed. And then hopefully you'll see not to do it. Um, I, I, um, with my, my friend Tim Gardner and I used to run a market stall in Bromley when I was at Hayes Lane. And um, we regularly used to see a girl who would come to us. Um, she, she had some learning disabilities perhaps. And, and she, she would regularly come to us and just stand there and be a bit awkward. <laughs> you know? she, she'd regularly chat to us, but some of the other people that came to the stall... They didn't really know how to talk to her and she would often say things that were inappropriate. And, and she, when I left to, to go into ministry, she was still coming every week, standing there, being awkward and people were getting annoyed with her. I heard from Tim two weeks ago that she was saved. <laughs> I mean, and there's Tim and I thinking, oh, how are we going to deal with this this week? You know, what, this is a bit inconvenient, you know. And she is now attending church faithfully. She's a saved woman. And uh, that, that to me showed that there's people who you think, well, they're never going to listen. But all those years, she was hearing it. It was cumulative. She was hearing the gospel. And one day she says, yeah, I believe that now. I've heard that. I believe it now. I want to go to church. I want to I hear the Bible. I want to read my Bible. I wanna, and it's all of a sudden, she's different. It's almost like, a, well, it's an overnight switch. It's an overnight change. And you see, we thought, oh, there's just, uh, we'll, we'll tolerate her. That's our sin. We, we thought, well, we'll tolerate this because, you know. It, it. And she was listening. 
all those years. We could have never foreseen that, but she became a Christian. And so there are people who, who we just think, oh, they're not going to become Christians. Well, how do you know? People would have thought that about me. People would have thought that about you, perhaps. Oh, he's, he's never going to listen. Well, here we are. <laughs> the prince of this world is driven out. Now, that does not mean that Satan is not active in any way. It obviously doesn't mean there's a, ce- a cessation of evil in the world. There's obviously evil present. But even without the devil, there'd still be enough evil, wouldn't there? You've got people in the world. That's half the problem, isn't it? People and sin would be in the world all the time. That You don't need the devil to help you be evil. You know, what does James say? That we sin because we're drawn away by our own lusts. Not because the devil made me do it. The, the devil is driven out. And it means he's lost his power over the nations to deceive them and keep them in subjection to himself. He cannot resist the power of the gospel. And there's that other passage I'm reminded of um, when we speak about um, the gates of hell not prevailing over the church. We often think of that as a defensive thing. Oh, the, Satan won't be able to attack us, or Satan won't be able to defend, defeat us. But actually, since when have gates ever been used as an offensive thing? Gates are a defensive structure. It's talking about the church assaulting Satan's kingdom. It's the other way around. Satan's kingdom cannot prevail against the onslaught of the church. That's what it's saying. It's saying the gospel goes forth, and there's nothing he can do about it. Doesn't that change your perspective slightly? Just because things don't work out as you think they ought to at the time, it doesn't mean they will never work out how you think they ought to. And at the end of the day, God knows those who are his. You can't undo that, can you? You can't change that. Satan no longer is able to wholesale deceive the world because the gospel goes forth with power. And it's still going forth today. This is not something that only happened in the Bible. It's still happening now, isn't it? We, we might look at England and think, well, it doesn't really seem like much is going on. Yeah, but if you went to other countries, you might see that a lot's going on. And this is often the way it is, isn't it? You know, there, there might be a, a, a dulling of the gospel in one area, but then there's a big increase somewhere else. So don't judge everything by our limited Western mindset. I think that's what I'm trying to say here, is that this is true regardless how you feel. This is factual. This is God's word. This is true regardless of how you're feeling on any given day. And I have to remind myself of this regularly. If you're anything like me, you can wake up one morning and just think, oh, I've tripped over the dog. I'm in a bad mood. You know, things are not going well. And I have to remind myself that this is true regardless of what I'm doing this morning. Jesus has the victory. We need to remember that. There's one more thing that I want to point out here. And it's directly related to what I just said. As a result of this hour having come, all people are drawn to Jesus. That's what you find. All people are drawn to Jesus. Now, this, of course, does not mean that every single person becomes a Christian. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that all people groups are drawn to him. All kinds of people come to Jesus. And this is the thing that we forget sometimes, isn't it? Um, You cannot predict 
who will become a Christian. You can't look at someone and say, oh, they would make a good Christian. I think that's the kind of person that we would like to, to see become. I know, I know you do it. <laughs> if only they would become a Christian, they would make a great Christian. And then someone else becomes a Christian. You think, oh, they're a bit weird. Why have, why have, why have they become a Christian? But this is just the way we are, isn't it? We, we, we think like that. But the church is made up of all kinds of people. Not just ethnically speaking, but social standing. Uh, and whatever differences you might think of that exist in the church, the church is brought together precisely because we are not all the same. God does not say, well, I'm going to get all these people who all think the same way. I'm going to, they're going to be Christians, but none of them. No, he takes people from all different groups. And you know what? Some people in church will annoy you. I'm sure you've never experienced that before, but some people in church may annoy you. That's because they're different from you. But that's part of how the church works, isn't it? God uses people who are different and you rub off. It's like getting a load of um, grit in a, in a bag and shaking it up. If you get a load of driveway stones in a bag or a bucket and you shake them repeatedly in a little tumbler, they come out and they're much smoother. All the edges have been knocked off. And it's the same way with us. God puts all kinds of people together. And in context here, it's saying, look, it's not just the Jews. It's all nations. But this, this variation applies not just to ethnicity. It applies to all kinds of people, doesn't it? There's always going to be someone who rubs you up the wrong way. And often it's that person who is used most in your sanctification. And quite often as well... The, the people who you see the problems in reflect your own problems. You can see it in other people, but you can't always see it in yourself. They see, God knows better than we do. We would choose people just like us, wouldn't we? If we were picking, who do I want to be in the church? We would choose all the people that we naturally get on with. We would choose all the people who are our cup of tea, to coin a nice English phrase. But actually, God says, no, I'm going to have him, her, 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 him. I'm, I'm going to have all these different people... And that I'm going to be glorified because they are all going to be united. They're all going to get, well, they're going to get on eventually. (laughs) But I'm going to be glorified in this. And this is not what the world does, is it? The world says we want everyone to be like us. And God says, I'm going to take a diverse multitude and they're all going to be like Christ. That's how it should be. And that's how it will be. From verses 12 to 16 in this passage... It's the Jews who are receiving Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, All the people waving palm branches, they're they're the Jews. And they kind of received him with the wrong motivations. They wrongly assumed that he was going to come and roll over the Roman Empire. They thought he was going to conquer their enemies and then take his kingship and then everything would be rosy from there on. That's what they assumed. And you can tell they had different ideas about his reign. Because later on in verse 34, you read this. Verse 34, it says, The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will reign, remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they're saying, well, look, when the Messiah comes, he's just going to live forever. Nothing bad could ever possibly happen to him. So how can you say what you're saying? Jesus had stated that he was going to be lifted up, which is 
In other words, crucified. He's trying to explain, this is how I'm going to die. He's lifted up on the cross for all to see. Even though the Jews had welcomed him in the triumphal entry, they're now confused about his reign. He was received into Jerusalem by Jews, but I want you to notice something here. In verse 20, you can easily miss this. Verse 20. We're told that the Greeks were asking to see Jesus. Easily miss that, can't you, in that passage? It starts with the Jews welcoming him in to Jerusalem. But verse 20, Greeks were there and they were asking to see Jesus. And it's this request from Greeks or Gentiles that prompts Jesus to say that his hour has come. Interesting connection that, isn't it? That it's when the Greeks ask, Jesus says, my hour has come. It marks a turning point, doesn't it? In history, the hour has come and the Gentiles are seeking after Jesus. This is a taste of what would happen en masse soon enough. Not immediately, but gradually and then hugely until eventually the Gentiles would outnumber the Jews. And all nations would be coming in. Initially, of course, in the church, the first converts were all Jews. But soon and in ever-increasing numbers, people from every nation were being joined to the church. So much so that in the end, well, I wonder how many of us are Jews and how many are Gentiles? The Gentiles outnumbered them in the end. And so with this announcement that the hour had come, and these statements about the consequences of that, Jesus tells people that his earthly ministry is coming to an end. And that's what you see at the end of that section there. When he says, while the light is here, believe. He's saying, my earthly ministry is coming to an end now. Soon I'm not going to be with you. Everything's going to change. That's what verse 35 and 36 are about. It's a warning to the Jews to believe in him because soon everything is going to be upended. Everything is going to change. We haven't talked about everything we could say about this passage. There's much else that you could say. But I want you to remember that the hour had come for Jesus to complete what he had come to do. That's the reason he came. To die for the sins of his people, to be buried and to be raised to life again. And the consequences of that changed everything. Not just for the people living then, but for you today. Because you live in the consequences of that. You live in the aftermath, don't you? You live in the time with the results of all of that. The hour had come for Jesus to complete what he was going to do, to die for the sins of the people, to be buried, to be raised to life again. And he did it willingly, knowing what would happen. He laid his life down and he had the power to take it up again. And that consequence changed everything. The Son of Man was glorified. The Father was glorified. The world was judged and the prince of this world was driven out. And as a result of the hour having come, all people are drawn to him. When you go out throughout the week, remember, no matter how you feel, this is still true. Let it be so, eh?